are in our series entitled Unfinished. And we've been going through here the past few weeks as we've examined what's gone on in the early church and the principles that are there for us. And as we've gone through this, we've seen that the, the name or the, the words Acts of the Apostles is probably an inadequate title for this book, but it's more of Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen that in the book of Luke was the first volume that Luke had written uh, about what Jesus had said and done. And then his second volume is the book of Acts, which records what happened as the Holy Spirit was poured out on these early believers and disciples of Jesus. And we see that they are gathering together, that they are hearing the word of God, and people are flocking to them. And it's pretty incredible. Uh, several years ago, I found myself in a Bible study called Experiencing God, written by Henry Blackaby. Some of you who have been around the church for some time might have heard of the story. It was very popular in the, the, late, uh, in the mid-90s and the early 2000s. And one of the things that I remember in this book was this, find out where God is working and then join him. That's a, that's a great truth. Find out where God is working and then join him. Because there's something about being, uh, about being a part of something that you know is apart from God, that it's not hype. But it's real hope. And as I've seen the churches in America today, and I've seen it, uh, how American churches are really good at putting on a good show. And, and that's not to denigrate all churches, but it, it might just be a byproduct of what God has done. And they brought excellent things that are in the, the services. But one I've seen is that several churches might have a great show, and you get done, and you're like, wow, that was a great show. But did I encounter Almighty God? I don't need to be in front of crowds of thousands to make that happen. As a matter of fact, I was found myself in downstate Illinois this past week. My grandfather stepped into eternity uh, a week ago Friday evening. He was 95 years old. And he was a faithful servant of Jesus. He was a pastor. Uh, he became a Christian at the age of, uh, in, his, in his early 40s, and then went into pastoral ministry right after that. And he served faithfully until he was in his 80s, and then just... Uh, Age kind of prevented him from continuing on in the ministry, and he, he stepped out of it, and then eventually uh, continued to encourage me, but went, and went into the very presence of the Lord last week. And I had his, his funeral and his visitation, and I was reflecting on his life, and the man had done 1,200 funerals in his life. It's pretty incredible just to see what, he had, what God had, had done in him and, and how God was working in and through his ministry. And as I had seen just how God had worked through him, and I remember being a church, I, I decided to go on this kind of nostalgic tour after, the, uh, after his funeral. And we drove by the, the church that I grew up in. And I, I, I walked, I, I drove up to it, and next door is a cemetery that's attached, and many of my relatives are there, and, and I saw that there was a truck. It's a country church, and there was a truck pulled up on the side of it, and, and I had my children with me, and I said, hey, let's go inside uh, and, and see if they'll give us a tour. I want to show you the church that I grew up in. And I walked in, and I couldn't believe how little it was. I mean, it was huge when you're a kid, huge. But suddenly, this church is extremely small. And I, and, I, and I sat there and I looked, I had my children and I was telling them stories about how God had spoken and how God had worked. And it didn't matter. I, and I remember this was a church that was not professional at all. Okay? You had half the church wearing overalls on Sunday morning. And then had over, they had hearing aids on. They always had, you could hear some going off in the middle of the service. And that's okay. They wanted to hear Jesus, about what Jesus was doing. And we had Sister Dorothy playing uh, the uh, piano with her oxygen tank on. <laughs> I mean, she's a faithful servant of God. And people are singing off tune. And, and you had the choir robes that I'm sure the apostles probably wore. And, I mean, it was just this long thing that you see going on. But you know what? It didn't matter about the show. 
There was no show there. God was there. God doesn't care about the, how flashy and professional things are. I mean, yes, we want to do things with skill. We want to do it well. But one thing that you can't do with professionalism is you can't bring people into an encounter of an almighty God. You can help people experience an emotion. But to bring people into encounter, have an encounter with the holy God, that's only something that God does when God's people seek his face and God's spirit pours out on them. And that's what we see going on here. These people weren't having great shows. They weren't, they weren't thinking about how to invite guests in and making them feel comfortable. They weren't doing any of those things. And again, these aren't bad things. But these were people that were genuinely seeking God, and God was taking care of drawing them to himself. And what do we see when God is on the move? What happens? Let me ask you this. Have you ever come face to face or come to an encounter with Almighty God? where God begins to speak to your heart and show you the reality of who he is and the reality of your sin and what it means to be in pursuant of him. Because when you come into contact with Almighty God, you know it's God. That it's no one else. That it's not an emotion. It's not just a feeling. It's this understanding that God is there. And that's what, as we put our services together, as I keep telling our team, is that's what we want to do, is we want to, to create a place where God is invited in and people can come face to face with Almighty God. And so today, as we jump into this, we want to see what happens when God is on the move. How does it look in our lives? What, who is attracted when God is on the move? And how do those, the power players, respond when God is on the move? Because oftentimes when we say God is on the move and God is working in people's lives, we think everybody loves that, but that's not the case. Some people don't want to see God's work because it's a threat to their way of living. And then others have a difficult time of processing it, understanding what's going on, what's happening in that person's life, what's happening in that church, what's going on, and they try to explain it away, or they try to remove it altogether. But today we're going to see what happens when God is on the move. What happens in, in your life? What happens in the life of your spouse? What happens in your family? What happens in your workplace? What happens in your school and with your neighbors when you have an encounter with Almighty God and His Spirit becomes is being poured out on His people? That's what we're going to look at today. But before we go any further, let's take a moment to pray and invite God to be in our midst and speak to us today. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you, knowing you are the mighty God. Lord, we pray today that you don't just show yourself in words, but that you might show yourself in your word, that you might show yourself in your spirit, bringing your word alive making it bear upon the hearts and minds of those present. Lord, you have said within your word the truth that has been proclaimed by so many preachers throughout time, that your word will not return void, but will accomplish every purpose for which you have intended it. And today we humble ourselves before you, acknowledging the reality of our sinfulness, our brokenness. And we pray that you might speak in spite of ourselves, and that you might show that you were not just in this place, but you were moreover in this people. As we long to see your face, we long to see your work, we long to experience your presence and work in our lives. As we 
surrender and listen to your Holy Spirit that is, that as he is convicting our hearts of sin and righteousness. So Lord, please pour out your spirit and speak to us. We pray your blessing on us now in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to jump into our text, and I have 21 points to give out in 30 minutes. So I would encourage you to put your seatbelt on and turn up your hearing aid if needed. We're going to jump within this together. First of all, let's start off in the beginning of our text in chapter 5, as we see in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done by, among the people by the hands of the apostles. They are healing people from all different backgrounds, experiences, those who were broken, those who were, were crippled, blind, deaf, I mean, skin diseases, cancers, heart issues, what other physical manifestations that you can think of, everyone is coming with all kinds of things to the apostles, and they are the active ones that are healing them. Now, I want us to see here that there is a difference between an active healing and a passive healing. An active healing is where God is speaking to and working through a certain group of people, and here we see the apostles are the ones that are designated to do this type of healing. And when I say these miracles that are being done here, I want to give you a little bit of a classification for miracles that we noticed that came up in our small groups this past week. First of all, there's kind of the, what we, some would call the everyday or the mundane. Some people say, well, God is doing miracles every day. The sun comes up, it goes down, the moon hangs in its place, the earth stays on its axis. Yes, that is a miraculous thing in how God sustains his creation, all right? But that's not the definition that we see that's really being played out here. And then some would say, well, there are medicines today. Those are miracles, yes, that we can go within our world and we can extract different things and use them for healing agents and use to manipulate our environments for the healing of different peoples. And yes, that is a gift of God that has enabled man to be able to use these resources for the common good of people. And some would call this the miraculous and these medicines. But the definition and the area that we are looking most at are those who are operating of the spirit which go against or are in uh, deference to the very natural realm and way things are handled. In other words, God supernaturally intervenes in a way that is different from normal. All right, so everyone's on the same page for that. And we see that these, these guys are pouring out, and it's the apostles that are the active agents that are doing this, divinely equipped by the Spirit of God to show a continuation of the very ministry of Jesus where he was an active healing agent. Now, does God still heal today? Yes, but he uses passive recipients. In other words, as we showed last week, and I might be going really fast, um, but it's God equips and uh, gifts certain people with what's called in Greek the gifts of healings where the Holy Spirit of God speaks to them by faith and they reach out and that person will be healed. They can't heal anyone they want. It's only when God operates by the sovereignty of his spirit speaking through a person to touch a person's life. And I'm talking about not just a sickness you were going to get over probably anyway. But supernaturally, I mean, whether it's cancer, whether it's a broken bone, whatever it might be, that God still does that in the sovereignty of his spirit as he sees fit. We cannot control that. We cannot manipulate it. God does that of his own decree and in his own way. And it's not a sideshow. 
It can't be that. So when you see these crusades of people going up and healing everybody like that, the Bible knows nothing of that type of thing. These guys weren't doing it in order to bring attention to themselves, but to the reality and purpose and healing power of what God was doing in the lives of his people, which was an extenuation, that's even a word, it was um, whatever it might be, it continued on with what God was doing through the lives of his people, and especially started in the ministry of Jesus, continued on as the spirit of God is being poured out. Now, as they're doing this, people are seeing God at work in people's lives. And this church had grown rapidly. They'd gone from 120 to 3,000, and now 5,000 and still growing. And how can they not grow? I mean, miracles were being poured out, amazing healings, the blind seeing, the lame walking, death hearing, all kinds of sicknesses and diseases being cured. Now, what can we gather from this? That when God is on the move, our faith becomes desirable to people. Our faith becomes desirable to people, all kinds of people. And not just through the miraculous, by the way, as we've seen that they had one heart, one mind, they were coming together, they were fellowshipping together, and love was being poured out. Don't fall in love with the miraculous when you don't experience the compare compassion, because love is greater than those things. Paul talks about this in the book of 1 Corinthians. Prophecies, they will cease. He goes through all of these different things about the gifts, but he says, if I have not love, love is the greater thing that's happening here as people are loving one another in an amazing way. They're feeling cared for. They're, they're being listened to. They're being loved and embraced in the message of Jesus. And it was messy. It was messy. If you think that these people came in and didn't have messy backgrounds, then you have a really wrong understanding of the church. We have this tendency to think that they came to know Jesus and life was perfect for them. They didn't have that. You had issues. You had conflicts. You had marital problems that came up. You had people trying to figure out how to forsake sin and die to their old way of life. It was messy, but they still loved each other. They were loving one another in spite of all the issues that came on, and that attracted people. Because God was in the move. He was in the move in the miraculous. He was in the move in the fellowship that they were experiencing. He was on the move as they were hearing the teaching and the preaching of the kingdom of God and who Jesus was. He's moving through all of these different things, and people are flocking to him. And we see that, first of all, he's desirable to the saved. Now, this should be a given. If you remember your geometry class, you have a given. The saved were there, but it says that people were gathering together to hear and learn. It says they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, what's amazing about this is that these believers were coming together to hear and be together. Now, I say this because in America, we've screwed this up. We are individual Christians, but under, don't understand that we're part of a corporate body, that God has ordained to be a part of a group of believers. But we have this tendency, and I've seen this play out in several different Christians' lives, where no church is good enough, and they become the law unto themselves. And they are better than any church. They can have fellowship with Jesus apart from that. No! Nowhere in scripture do you see that happening. You see that there's a one another concept. Love one another, forgive one another, encourage one another. There's the idea that we've been brought into a body of believers, a church. Not a building, but a body. And so these guys were fellowshipping together. So when I see people say, oh, I don't need church to my walk with God, I'm like, Are, you're not reading the word of God. The word of God says we need one another. We need to be there, even with the people that are sandpaper people that rub you the wrong way. 
that God uses to smooth out the edges of your life. And we need, but we need to work through those things as we have the Spirit of God working out within each one of us. So these guys are all together, the saved, and they're together in Solomon's portico. And this is this middle area in the temple where actually men, Jewish men and women, could come and meet together and learn more about Jesus. Now, notice verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, several people feared the wrath of the Jewish leadership, being put out of the community, bringing shame to their family, perhaps losing their way of living and even their lives. And as we've seen before, the price to follow Jesus is great, but it is worth it. He is desirable to the scared. Now, that might seem a little bit of an odd point, but it's true. There are people that are scared to follow Jesus, and some people say, well, if you're scared, then, then you can't really follow Jesus. I disagree. Two examples that I, I can give from the scriptures that show that there were some scared people that took time to really declare their allegiance to Jesus, and that was a guy named Nicodemus. Remember, he was part of the Jewish ruling council. He was a Pharisee. He's one of the elite teachers in Israel, but he's afraid of what the, the, the fraternity of the, the uh, priests are going to think about him. They're going to probably kick him out, withdraw his credentials, maybe shame his family. So he comes to Jesus at night to talk to him, to learn. He's a scared disciple at first. And then you have this guy named Joseph of Arimathea who follows Jesus in additions who wants to know more about him. But both of them don't say anything when Jesus is brought before the ruling council and is declared guilty of death. And they are ready to crucify him. They didn't consent to it, but they didn't object either. There's no record of that. They stayed silent. They were too scared of what other people would think. But yet, no, more, no sooner when Jesus dies on the cross, they are there. Joseph supplies the burial place for him. And Joseph had some money. He shouldn't be afraid of anybody, but he is. Even though he had money, it didn't make him more powerful. And then you see Nicodemus is providing the myrrh and the aloes, the, the stuff to anoint the body. They were scared, but then they declare their allegiance. You might be scared. I mean, are you scared of what's going to happen to you? We will follow Jesus. Are you afraid you're going to lose your legacy? Are you afraid that your family's going to come against you? Are you afraid what's going to happen in your workplace? Continue to follow, but eventually you're going to have to declare your allegiance at some point in time. That's why the scripture says in the book of Matthew, as Jesus has shared this with us, it says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 through 34, so everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. It's going to take some courage, but if you're scared, you're a scared follower, you've got to declare that. You've got to declare that because he, those are the people that are still going to come. God's showing that even the scared are allowed in. And then you have though, both sexes. Now, I know that sounds a little strange, but look at verse 14 with me for a moment. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The scripture goes to great effort to say both men and women. And there's a reason why this teaching took place in Solomon's portico, because women could actually go in here, and in Judaism, especially within the temple, there were only certain places women could go. But they're meeting because they want women and men to hear the word of God together. 
Now, some people say, what's the big deal about that? Well, in certain societies, some churches only allow, I mean, men are in and men and women are completely separate and men or women are looked on as less than. But in Judaism, especially with Jesus, he elevates the status of women, showing that there is an equality between the sexes. Now, we have other parts of our society. I know in different parts of Asia, in some parts even of America, there, I mean, where have all the good men gone? Their men aren't there. Men have shirked or acquiesced in their responsibility to be the leaders of their families and in the churches. And here you see both men and women in their masculinity and femininity coming to learn the teaching of Jesus, re realizing that they are co-heirs of salvation. And he ap ap appears or uh, ap appeals, excuse me, to both men and women. So we see that the both sexes are there. And we see it's also desirable for the superstitious. Now, the superstitious. Now, here's where we get that. Look at verse 15. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Now, it takes a little context to know what's going on here and an understanding of the ancient world because it was believed that a person's shadow carried a person's influence in the ancient world. And because Peter was the great spokesman and had, and had been able to heal the man born lame with, when he was with John, then his shadow casting over them, they believed, would heal them. And we don't see that it didn't happen. But it wasn't a, 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 that the shadow actually had power. It's a superstitious belief. And it wasn't his shadow that truly healed them. It was God's power coming out from them and their belief that God could heal the same is true of the woman subjected to bleeding for 12 years in Matthew chapter 9. She thought that if she could touch the hem of Jesus' garment, she was made well. Was it really the hem of his robe? No. It was simply him. God will even work in spite of our superstitions to accomplish his purpose. Now, superstition is something that is alive and well in our world. People believe in all kinds of luck, talismans, trinkets, but none of them heal. In the ancient world, there were many charlatans who went about peddling trinkets that they claimed to have healing power, splinters from the cross, part of Jesus' robe, the Holy Grail, the Shroud of Turin, and such things. But things and places don't have power in them. The power is in Jesus. And while God will work in spite of our superstitions, it is best to abandon them and place our faith in Jesus alone, not in talismans and amulets, trinkets, and formulas. Now, in verse 16, we read, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick. They brought with them the sick. It's the next point that we can see within our notes. Those who are suffering with all kinds of illnesses, cancers, heart ailments, skin issues, lame, deaf, mute, blind, etc. Everything and anything that they had and were dealing with, they were brought to the apostles because they alone had true hope and ability to heal. And they also brought with them those afflicted with unclean spirits. Now, the Greek word for afflicted here refers to unclean spirits, also known as demons exerting. And it's a fascinating word for afflicted. It's, it it's, creates an overwhelming sense of worry, annoyance, and frustration. The word literally refers to a crowd pushing someone along, and they can't get away from it. And it's these demons are pushing them along to all kinds of stresses, anxieties. These are the people that are spiritually oppressed. 
Now, as Westerners, we don't do a very good job of understanding this. We've kind of put that to our charismatic brothers or said it's in the majority world cultures. And that we say we, we focus on the psychological, we automatically go there. Now, there is a part where the psychological is definitely involved, mental, all physiological, everything passed through the fall in our humanity. Everything, psychology, mentally, physiologically, emotionally, and there are things that require some medical treatments for those different issues. But there, if you don't think that demonic stuff is very real, you have another thing coming. I have a, a friend of mine that I met in India. He is a Harvard professor, and we were speaking, and he is the, uh, works at the largest privately held hospital in the United, psych, uh, psychiatric hospital in the United States, McLean Hospital, it's right outside of Boston. And as we were speaking with one another, I said, you gotta, you got to help me out here. I said, I need to know something. I said, I know that there are, you know, you don't hear that there are believers at Harvard very often. He goes, but there's a lot of us that are there that are serving. And I said, where does the mental be end and the demonic begin? He goes, that's a great question, and we don't know. But we know that it's there. Here's a Christian serving at one of the largest psychiatric hospitals in the United States. And there's, there's a lot of people coming out of the woodwork now saying, how do we deal with demonic? What is deliverance? And you're seeing some great evangelical authors that are reading and writing and studying and practicing this type of ministry because it is real. Now, there's abuses of it. We, we know that wherever God works, there's an abuse uh, right along down the line. And many Christians are afraid to even talk about it because they're afraid that if they talk about it, it suddenly becomes real and then they have to deal with it. It's already real. We just have to learn how it operates because in many ways, it's just only a demon and the demon can be removed through the name of Jesus Christ. But there are rules for engagement because demons are liars and there's not always just, just one. Sometimes there are several, like Jesus dealt with a legion and spoke to legion and the demon didn't respond because there were many. So we see that, that people do and be, can become demonically or what we call demonized. Possession's a bad term. Demonized, afflicted, moved along by demons. And these people were oppressed. And I'm not going to get into all the deliverance aspects today. I know some are very disappointed about that. But that's not what today's about. It's to show that after they encountered the risen Christ and the power of his spirit, that they were able to fr free those who were afflicted by demons. And he still does this today, by the way. The demons have to be subjected to the name of Jesus Christ. So he's there to help and free the spiritual, spiritually oppressed. Now, while the gospel is desirous to all kinds of people, it is also dangerous to the powerful. Dangerous to the powerful. Not everybody loves to have Jesus come into their lives or into their community. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Christ is a threat to the powerful. Christ represents a new kingdom, a different power, and requires them to be brought to give an account for their action. People don't like that, and it's a threat because it might mean a change of life, a change of history, a removing of their previous legacy. I know as Christianity has made inroads within Hindu India, there's been a negative response. There was a man who had brought his two sons to do ministry in India. They ended up sleeping in their car uh, the night before this uh, ministry was to take place. The Hindu radicals found out, locked them in the car, poured out gasoline, and lit them on fire and burned them alive. Because they don't want to see Jesus' name being proclaimed. 
And you see it going on all over the world in different parts of it where Christianity is made illegal or it's forbidden to worship or they might give freedom of religion and their constitution, but in their private practice, it is not allowed. It is heavily persecuted. But it changes and people don't like that change. I've said that before. We don't like change. That's why you sit almost in the same place every Sunday. We don't like change, but it changes those around us. And these guys are seeing those, I mean, they're seeing this church grow rapidly. Started off with 12 guys in a crowd with a carpenter. And now it jumped into 120 and then 3,000. Now it's 5,000. Friends, family members are coming to them and going, what do you think about this Jesus guy? What do you think about him, rabbi? And the Pharisees are going, I'm so tired of fielding questions about this dude. I mean, think about it. This is a, and, and even their families are asking. Kids are showing up going, Dad, I went to synagogue today, and they were talking about Jesus. Man, he can heal people. Ah, they're getting crazy. And it's affecting their families, and they don't like it, and it changes those around us. And it changed in, in a way that they just, it made them jealous. Because think about it. These guys trained their whole lives to be the leaders of their people. They went to, uh, I mean, they went to Shabbat school. They went to synagogue. They memorized the Torah, uh, which is, you know, Old Testament. And they were memorizing some of the verbal traditions. They'd work their way up. And here comes this carpenter guy with no training, working with some small business owners, Jewish zealots, and riffraff of society. And he's transforming them. And then all these people follow him. I'd be a little ticked too. Being honest, I've worked all that hard, a really hard work, and then I see this guy show up, I'm going to think he's a little bit of an upstart. I'd feel a little bit of threat there. And they did. It changed, and it frustrated them, and it made them jealous of the attention that Jesus and the apostles were getting. So they can't take it, so they decide to have the leaders arrested. The disciples are arrested and put into prison. Let's, we're going to shut them up. We're going to lock them up. And I find this fascinating here, but an angel shows up in the night, opens the prison doors, and lets them out. And once out, they are told to go to the temple and teach about this new life, which they do. And when the Jewish leaders show up in the morning, they get all ready to go. They have their counsel. They send the temple guards, bring in the prisoners. The guys come back and they go, hey, boss, um, uh, they're not there. What do you mean they're not there? Uh, They're gone. Doors are locked. I got the keys. (laughs) Uh, We don't know where they're at. And then one of them shows up. He was probably late to the meeting. And he said, hey, these guys are teaching in the temple. And so they're frustrated. And they send the authorities to arrest them. Now, what is God showing us there? The gospel. And when God's working, it can't be contained. When God is working in a life or in a community, can't be contained you can try to lock it up you can try to shut it up but you can't shut up a changed life it's dangerous to people because they can't control it other ways of working just doesn't work with the followers of jesus here they even lock them up can't be stopped gospel is going to go forth. I don't care what dictator is in charge. I don't care what demilitarized zone might be. I don't care what society is or government is ruling. God's word is going to go forth. It's like a fire. And it's going to transform hearts and lives. It can't be contained. And it's, it, it's dangerous. And you know why also it's dangerous? Because it clashes with our worldview. 
how we want to view the world. We have to, every single one of us has to create a world in our minds in which we operate. We have identity markers that define who we are. It might be the color of our skin, the language we speak, the country we're born in, the family we're born in, the sports teams we like. We find identifiers and we put them on our cars, we put them on our Facebook pages, social media. We're always looking to define ourselves. These identity markers. But when God comes in, he changes it all. He upheaves it. He removes a lot of those barriers. And what society values, God doesn't. And he changes people and it clashes with our worldview. And it causes us to stop and shake our heads and go, what happened? See, the Sadducees, these, remember, these are one of the, uh, made up a great uh, large group or contingency of the Jewish ruling council. And they denied All the books of the Bible, except the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They also denied denied the existence of angels and spirits and demons. Who does God have show up to free the apostles? Angels. That's what he does. And that that made them stop looking in the, the, I mean, you can imagine they're all running to the jail cell going, I don't know what happened. Do you know what happened? Can you explain this? I don't understand it because there's no room for what God was doing in their minds because it clashes with our understanding of ourselves and our society and what our society values in these little worlds we construct in which we live mentally and emotionally. It clashes with that and it changes us from the inside out and that's dangerous to people because they can't find a way to define it in the way that they can understand because God is not allowed in their understanding of things. It challenges our worldview, but it also challenges our authority. I mean, it clashes with our worldview, but challenges our authority. See, the apostles are brought before the authorities. And it's amazing, by the way. Here's another little caveat to that. That these guys, and they wondered where they were. I mean, if you think about it, why did the angel tell them to go and teach in the temple? Because they wanted to show that it was God that had done this. If they were just escaping, they'd never know. But they're showing that they don't have a fear of what's going to happen to them. That they're going to go and teach. They're not hiding away. But this is a challenge to their authority. Because they bring them and they said, we told you. We told you. Did we not make it clear that you weren't supposed to teach or preach in this name? Now you're going to make us all guilty of this guy's life. And everybody, everybody's up in arms about it. You're going to get us killed. But notice, is, notice what they say. Peter, said, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's why the angel had them preach in the temple when they knew they were going to, I mean, they knew they'd be caught again. It was to show the authorities they weren't running away in fear. They were testifying in the face of danger, obeying a greater authority than themselves. We want to be our own authority, but we aren't God. God is God. And we are ultimately all accountable to him. It changes our understanding of how we are to live our life. We're the masters of our own destiny, we tell ourselves. We're the ones that did it our way. Remember, at the end of time, there are two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those who God says to them, thy will be done. Challenges our authority. And it charges us with sin. Peter doesn't pull any punches. Notice what he says to the religious leaders in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
Remember, this is the one who denied the Lord in front of a servant girl, and now he's bold in front of the very people that killed his Lord, but he knows that death is not the end. There's a resurrection that awaits. And he's charging them with sin. And each one of us is indicted before God because we are in essence spiritually guilty of killing God's Christ by our sins. We are guilty of killing Jesus primarily, spiritually speaking. God gave his son for our sins, not someone else's, but ours. We are sinners in need of his savior. The gospel indicts every single one of us. In order to be saved, we have to turn away from our sin to the Savior, who alone is the one who can forgive our sins. That's why he says to give repentance to Israel. Repentance, by the way, is ultimately a gift. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. You can't come to God unless God gives his spirit to you to make you come to himself. You are, you are completely unable unless the spirit of God draws you to himself. And here he says he's the one that gives repentance. He's the one that will forgive sins, first to Israel and then to all of us who are the elect of God who enter into that. He charges us with sin. And now look at verse 32. Peter then says, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Oh, that was a slap in the face right there. Because what he was saying to them is, by the way, we're the ones that obeyed and God gave the spirit of, uh, spirit of God to us. And that's where they go nuts. I mean, these guys go ape nuts. They want to kill him now. Because you know, here, here's what really bothers them is that the disciples claim to have something that the other people did not. That's the next point. Letter F there. They claim to have something that the others, I mean, or we may not have, meaning that those who are unbelievers the gospel, when God is working, there is a claim. We say that God is working in us because we have the spirit of God within us. And they're not being arrogant, they're just being honest. And they were once again showing they were on the right with God and the Sadducees were not. And this is where we often get with, in trouble with unbelievers because we claim moral high ground that makes it seem like we're better than they are. We have to be careful and not come across as arrogant, but humbly certain of what God's word says, pleading with people to be reconciled to God. And when we see God work in our lives or through us, we must also give credit to God for the change that has been seen in our lives as well as claim personal responsibility for the evil we have done. And when we do that, the gospel becomes much more glorious and attractive to those around us. Do we have the Spirit of God? Let me ask you this. Do you have the Spirit of God living in you, and does your life reflect it? Now, how did they respond to the apostles' testimony? They wanted to kill him. It was then that one of their most esteemed teachers spoke up, a guy named Gamaliel. He called for the court to be silenced, had the apostles removed so that he could talk freely. They were in a tough situation. To recognize the work of the apostles meant that they themselves would be considered guilty of killing God's Messiah. But that was just a terrible thought. If they tried to kill or harm them, then the people might riot because the people believed the apostles and they were experienced healings. What are these guys to do? And there's a greater principle that I want to bring to our attention. Because when God is working in people's lives, it becomes difficult for some to process. It becomes difficult for people to process. These guys are trying to figure it out. They hate it. At the same time, they recognize there's a lot on the line if they reject it. And some people don't know what to do with you when they see Jesus working in your life. They can't see, that. they can't understand the change. They might say that it's a fad, it's going to go away. Something else will come along in a little bit. They're going to ridicule you, they're going to mock you, they're going to try to bring you down. They might try to silence you. 
And why is it difficult to process? Because most people, when they encounter you and what God is doing in your life, aren't sure if we are or you are a threat to them. Why would you be considered a threat? Because, I mean, they, they, I mean, these guys thought they were a threat because they said, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Such words can mean their lives would be threatened. That's what happens when we call out someone's sin. They see you as a threat. They see, they see you as threatening their way of life or maybe bringing harm to them. And fear checks in. And it's a threat to their power and how they're living and what they value. And your words have made them feel uncomfortable, made them think about the stuff that they don't want to think about. And they would prefer to let sleeping dogs lie, but we cannot. We have to press the truth of Christ home prayerfully, compassionately, and truthfully. Then Gamaliel gives them a bit of a history lesson that will help them out. He cites two situations that some of the older members probably remembered. One with a guy named Thutis, and another with a guy named Judas the Galilean. Both of them had risen up to a place of prominence within Jerusalem. They surrounded themselves with some followers, but both of them were killed, and their movements died with them. And he says, if Jesus is like those guys, then they could just, we could simply tune him out. We could tune him out. And that's what people will try to do to you. They're going to see if they can tune you out and tune out what God is doing in your life. They'll just ignore it. It's fine of what you're doing, but it'll just putter out later. It's not really going to be a thing to me. So if they don't see you as a threat, they might just try to tune you out. They simply want to move along and have you and not have you there with them. But one of the amazing things about Gamaliel is that he actually leaves a door open for what the apostles are doing. He recognizes that it may be truly God at work. That's what we're looking for. Look at verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. You can tune it out, no big deal. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Scary words. Opposing God. See, sometimes people see that God is at work. Sometimes they follow and other times they don't. But as God works in you and through you, know there will be some who will respond negatively. Some will try to ignore you and still others will see God at work and will be drawn accordingly. And even though they may acknowledge it or they may not acknowledge it's God's work, I mean, they might see it's God's work or they may not. They might still try to teach us a lesson. They still might try to shut us up. Look at verse 40. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. I think if they thought it was really a work of God, they probably wouldn't beat them. But they beat them anyway and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. People might try to come against us and try to stop us, to find greater ways to assert their power as small as it might be. And we have to learn to recognize that God is greater and learn to take joy in, this, in suffering for Jesus. Learn to take joy in suffering for Jesus. I love verse 41. Then they left the presence of, this council, of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Suffer. Suffering like this is a spiritual discipline whereby we are made more like Jesus because we can share in his sufferings. They considered it an honor to suffer for Jesus. He provided eternal salvation for them, and for them to suffer in his name was such an amazing honor. We don't look at it that way. For us, suffering is to be avoided at all costs. But here they saw their suffering as honorable because that meant they were fulfilling Jesus' words as we read in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your word, your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They were able to suffer for Jesus, which meant that their reward be, would be great in heaven. Have you suffered for righteousness' sake? Perhaps not so overtly, but what about in your job, your career? What about around your family? Take joy if God allows you to suffer for his name, as stressful as it might be, as fearful as you might be, but you will be blessed. And no matter what, we must follow the apostles' example in verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teach, teaching and preaching that, the Christ, that Christ is Jesus. Now, let me, a little note here. They're not going around healing still. It says they don't continue to cease teaching and preaching. So they weren't consumed with that. God was doing it. They weren't denying it. But you see here the focus is on teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. We must continue to testify about his salvation. They went from house to house and kept teaching and preaching that the Christ, the anointed one who was expected was and is Jesus. Now what is keeping you from testifying about who Jesus is? Fear? Don't be afraid. You think you're not good enough? You're not! You're not! That's the whole point of the cross. You were not good enough. That's why God sent Jesus. He knew you were going to be messy. He knew you were going to screw it up. He knew you were going to fail and fall. But he gave the cross and took the whole wrath of God upon himself so that you would be positionally righteous. That's the point of the cross. I always get applause when I'm done. I never know how to interpret that. God is worth more than we could ever imagine. When God is on the move, all kinds of people notice. Whether it's the curious or the critics, the powerful or the powerless. We don't know how God, how people are going to respond, but we are called to testify, to suffer, and persevere on to share the truth of who he is and what he has done on the cross for our sins and theirs. How he died their death, took on their shame, experienced their alienation, and through Christ, and through that Christ, he died. I mean, Jesus died for us. It was by that cross, that death, that death itself died. And Jesus' resurrection gave us hope. Hope for honor, hope for forgiveness, for purpose, for peace, for a new life and a new family. And it's available to you today. Repent of your sin and embrace Jesus and he will save you. Let's not put it off anymore. Do it today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, you are the mighty God. You are the matchless God. And oh, Lord, our God, we know that your word is powerful and it will accomplish the purpose for which you intended it. And Lord, I pray that it cuts deep into the heart and recesses of our souls. The secret places that we have kept away from you, Lord, penetrate deep. Cut deep into the cancer of our unbelief and sin and cut away our self-righteousness to show us the reality and the depth of your power and your love. And Lord, may your spirit be evidenced within our congregation. May you continue to pour out your spirit. May you touch hearts and minds and let not people leave without encountering you, the one true and living God.
So Lord, please, do your work within us. Change us, empower, inspire us. And Lord, we thank you that you are moving, and it's not because of what we have done, but it's in spite of ourselves that you're working. And we give you all glory and all honor and all power, and we pray that you might continue to glorify your name again and again and again. Pour out your spirit, touch hearts and minds, and Lord, empower us to be witnesses, to testify when it's difficult, to testify in our marriages to our spouses, to testify to our children, whether they are small and in the home or they have grown up and they have turned away from you. Lord, help us to testify in our workplace. Help us to be faithful. Help us to admit our failures and seek forgiveness. Help us to make restitution. Lord, help us to show the reality of your presence and your work within our lives. And Lord, continue to do a work within our church that is beyond our ability to understand or comprehend because you are God and you are dwelling in your people. So Lord, use us, empower us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.